What a precious gift it is to gather as the saints of God in sweet fellowship around what we have in common, salvation in Jesus Christ, with a common goal to lift up His holy name and to focus our attention on His holy word. This morning, would you turn in your scriptures to Nehemiah chapter 9 with me today, and let us focus once again on the word of God revealed to us in the leadership and testimony of these saints who are called forth, namely Ezra and Nehemiah, to pioneer an effort to rebuild a nation that was, had lost its way, and to do so going back to the very foundations. Most essentially, the Word of God proclaimed to them through His covenants of old, and then to reconstruct their entire life and their entire society upon, once again, the foundations of God's inerrant truth. Here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we have what we've come to know in our study as a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a restating of the terms of relationship of a people to their God. And herein is a pattern also for a redemptive covenant renewal ceremony for the individual before his God. That is to say, our relationship with the Lord is established upon a blood sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ that repairs a broken relationship and sets the terms of our fellowship with the Holy God and so forth. We call this, of course, the gospel. The gospel is modeled in these covenant structures of old. And we shall see that in greater detail today as we move through this section of Nehemiah's account of the reconstitution of Jerusalem and Israel as a nation upon returning from exile with this handful coming now from Babylon to resettle the land. Today's sermon is entitled, Faithful God, Wicked People. Faithful God, Wicked People. This Title comes from verse 33 of Nehemiah 9. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. And their heightened understanding and the clarity of the word of God sung, confessed, read, proclaimed, and expounded among them, this much was clear to the people of God. He was faithful, yet they in their sin were wicked. And so they are repenting accordingly. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to give further voice to repentance for us today, His church, in the context of this covenant renewal ceremony. If you recall our last message from Nehemiah 9, our aim was virtually the same, which stands to reason as we continue through this section of Nehemiah's account of this ceremony. With your Bible open to Nehemiah 9, would you stand out of reverence for God's Word, even as they stood in His day? as we hear the Word of God proclaimed in our hearing today. Nehemiah 9, we're going to read, I'll read for you, verses 27 through 33. Nehemiah 9, 27 through 33. Hear now proclaim the Holy Word of God. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies, You gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. 
yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them, and turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32. Now therefore, O God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> A faithful God in spite of the wickedness of his people. A running theme through this section of Nehemiah 9. Let me give you just a brush up and context and background. This section we are in today is the historical prologue continuing through, it's continuing apace, and it is the uh, accounting, that is to say, the relationship between Israel and their God, and the nation of Israel is rehearsing these things, they're confessing as much, they're acknowledging this history during this aspect of this covenant renewal ceremony. The model for a covenant renewal ceremony as the foundation for a people was first given to us, as we've noted before, in Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 8. And there you can study at a later time, but you'll recall Moses' directive that God gave him to the people upon entry into the promised land, they're to call us, they're themselves to attention and there is to be a certain ritual or ceremony or worship service that would commence. It would be attended by a permanent memorial where the law of God would be etched in stone and upon that plaster would be written basically the foundation for the future of this people. Indeed, the word of God revealed in his law. Furthermore, they were to confess that their livelihood is dependent upon faithfulness to that, those covenant terms. In Deuteronomy, as, the word, or as this record continues, you see them say, as far as they are faithful to uphold God's word and law, so they will prosper in the land. But when they fall short, they'll be cursed in the field, cursed in their home, cursed in the way, cursed in their international policy, cursed in their needful, and so on and so forth. And thus, in this covenant renewal ceremony, the people would establish the foundation, the spiritual terms upon which the future of this nation would be built. Does this model have relevance for us today? Absolutely, it does. After all, as we've already prayed and confessed, the word of the Lord endures forever. Deuteronomy 27, 1-8 provides a legal precedent for this culturally significant repentance gathering. As the nation confesses their sins and the sins of their fathers, they, they affirm the sovereign intentions of a just and merciful God who has revealed himself to them through the ages as both judge and savior. The Lord has revealed himself as the righteous judge and the merciful savior throughout the course of their history. 
And the language of Nehemiah 9 then continues with manifold ascribing references. That is, uh, acknowledging or crediting the Lord with certain things. They say in as many words that it is their sovereign Lord who gave them, quote, into the hand of their enemies. This is ascribing language. It's God's sovereign will that he would deliver them as judge into the hands of their enemies as punishment and chastisement that they might learn to return to him. And another quote lifted from our text today, it is their sovereign God who heard from heaven when they cried out to him. It is their sovereign God, furthermore, who gave them saviors. All this in verse 27. So this pattern we see in the text includes this apostasy or falling away from one's once confessed faith into idolatrous sin. And this idolatrous sin leads in God's righteousness to chastising judgments falling upon the people. This judgment then leads a certain contingency of the people to cry out in desperate pleas for deliverance. And God in His steadfast love, in His faithfulness, and in His tender mercies answers. And He appoints for them in times like these through His Messiahs, if you will, through His Saviors, small s, small m. God appoints a way of escape in His mercy. And then the cycle is repeated numerous times. We see this, of course, in the record of the book of Judges. A women's group has been studying the book of Judges for some time. And ladies, you'll be very familiar with this cycle. It is also the legacy of the heirs of the promised land summarized in the record leading up to the Assyrian exile. And you could turn later in your own study to 2 Kings 17 to get a summary of the northern kingdom's track record of faithfulness. The Lord is always faithful, yet they continually display their wickedness. Faithful God, wicked people is also the case in the northern kingdom as well. So this all-too-familiar song now is sung centuries later, brings us up to speed in our timeline to our text today. This is sung by a faithful band returning under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership to rebuild Jerusalem as a nation of people and a center of worship under God. Thus, it stands to reason that they would return to the foundation of their society in a covenant renewal ceremony. The ascribing language in our text today is paired throughout the with confessional honesty, recalling the faithfulness, faithlessness, excuse me, of prior generations. Like verses 29 and 30, this contrasting language comes to the fore. Following the works of the Lord, we have this kind of yet phrase, or yet they phrase. God was faithful, yet they, he warned them, yet they acted presumptuously. You bore with them, they say, yet they would not give ear. Finally, the people signal that this timeline, so far confessing the generational sins of their fathers, intersects with their present era, and they confess personally. In verse 33, quote, we have acted wickedly. As a consequence, they recognize the justice of God and His heavy hand upon them. They say in verse 36, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. They confess in as many words that they deserved these consequences, but now once again they are appealing to the mercies of their delivering God 
to provide for them once again a Savior, if you will, a way of salvation that they may reestablish the hope and future of this people in the center of their worship on the once-for-all faith, on the foundation of their future hope, on the historical reality of the world, on the promises that attend a covenant renewal ceremony. And so this brings us up to our passage today with a little background. And let me give you a heading for today's message. A covenant renewal movement. You could substitute for covenant renewal movement a revival. A revival must acknowledge the following. Number one, fair weather faithlessness. Fair weather faithlessness. We must acknowledge in this nation, may I suggest, that when the going has been easy and we've been in times of prosperity when we're blessed with relative ease, that this has tended in many cases, perhaps more often than not, not by worshiping the Lord and thanking Him in a heart of continuity and continued obedience, but instead a heart of faithlessness, drifting from the core and foundation of our faith, lying to ourselves that in the easy life that we have, that we are responsible for our own hope. Thus, a covenant renewal movement or a revival must acknowledge fair weather faithlessness. Secondly, a revival must acknowledge, a covenant renewal movement must acknowledge the grace and mercy of warnings. The warnings that come as an alert of pending doom or danger. Something that is destructive right around the corner. The judgments of God that are worthy of acts of faithlessness, those in their proclamation, those disclosed are a great mercy and a grace. This cuts against the grain of much that is assumed in what is passes for preaching this day, where the love of God might be a more popular topic than the justice of God. However, we will see that true grace and mercy includes the warnings as well. And thirdly, a covenant renewal movement not only must acknowledge and confess fair weather faithlessness, the grace and mercy of warnings, but finally the terms of repentance. Terms of repentance, what does it mean to turn from your sin and unto God? Several messages ago in this series, we mentioned like three aspects of repentance. And I just reinforce these. They're very simple. Parents, you can use this in sharing the gospel with your children. Number one, admitting your sin. Number one, admit that you're a sinner. Number two, seek God's forgiveness. And number three, turn from your sin unto obedience to the Lord. To admit sin, to seek God's forgiveness, and to turn from sin. And you will see these aspects in the decisions, in the commitment that these people are making in Nehemiah's day. First of all, a covenant renewal movement must acknowledge, must confess. A true revival must repent of fair weather faithlessness. Nehemiah 9, 27 and 28. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But listen, verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies." Now, more evidence to this fair-weather faithlessness is compounded as we back up a few verses. Note in verse 25, it says, or 22, You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. 
This was a land flowing with milk and honey, the poetic language has said in other places. They took possession of this land, and you multiplied their children there as the stars of heaven. It goes further to state in verse 22. You subdued their enemies before them, verse 24, recalling prior generations. And then verse 25, they captured fortified cities in a rich land. They took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. But notice a shift in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. You see, fair weather, faithlessness. In light of this overflowing goodness, they forgot the Lord. One silver lining of affliction is that we remember how dependent we are on the Lord. That's a silver lining of difficult trial. You may uh, struggle with resenting the Lord for putting you through a difficult circumstance that you don't feel equipped to bear. The Lord will push us to the breaking point of our own soul's ability to bear up under certain things to teach us what Paul proclaimed to the Corinthians that this despair, even unto death, was to teach us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on the Lord. The Lord in His mercies will often send times of affliction to remind us that we are desperate for Him for our next breath. For our hope of salvation, without Him, we fail and fall and have no footing, no foundation, no hope for a future or a society. But one must ask another question. Are there sufficient means to stand even in times of blessing? Yes. And this is where last week's message could dovetail right in here. Psalm 103, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. One of the great purposes of a covenant renewal ceremony is to establish that the basis of the people's consciousness, hope, and faith is built upon the record and the remembrance of His benefits. How can you stand in any day, a day of affliction or a day of great prosperity, consistently honoring the Lord and worshiping Him? Well, you must remember what He has done. You must not soon forget. You must return to the altar of God's grace and mercy. You must be mindful and you must command your soul. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. You may think in your deceived assumptions that gathering regularly with God's people is optional. You would be wrong. Why? Because this is one means that the Spirit provides for us to command ourselves, remind ourselves of his benefits and worship together. To hold ourselves accountable in this place that our soul's attention would be placed upon the one who deserves it and that we would bless the Lord, oh my soul, our souls together as we worship Him on this Sabbath day each week, this Lord's day when we gather. We must confess, if we are guilty of fair weather faithlessness, that we have forgotten the benefits of the Lord. And therefore, we must renew the covenant, as it were, by returning in our remembrance to the gospel grounds of our own salvation the basis, foundation, the cornerstone of our hope as we've studied also recently in Isaiah 28 and 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice that dominion was foreclosed on the people that they lost dominion and in fact became under the dominion of something else in their faithlessness. One of the consequences of forgetting the benefits of the Lord, if you will, is in verse 27, therefore... You, speaking directly, second person of the Lord, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. This goes to the very first mandate of of, uh, God's call for man. 
his very vision and purpose for his existence all the way to the Garden of Eden. Adam is given this charge we sometimes call the dominion or the cultural mandate to go forth and to subdue the earth and to take dominion over it. So if we are acting righteously within the domain of responsibility that God has given us, whether it be our jobs, our relationships, our family, our leadership roles, our influence within any of those in our church, in our world today where He's called us, if we fail to be obedient to that task of taking dominion, then what often happens or what can be expected as a consequence, we come under the dominion of another. Verse 28. You abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. In other words, dominion is a reality. It's an inescapable fact of life. But whether or not you are free or a slave depends upon where your heart is with the Lord and where your walk is with Him. Said another way, and to quote a prior title to one of our messages, it's either sackcloth or slavery. The people recognize that they are slaves. We say, they say, behold, we are slaves this day in this land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Why? Because they failed to follow his instructions, to steward well his benefits and the responsibilities he gave them. They failed in, and therefore they became slaves. It's the same in our day, is it not? Why do we lament the loss of our civil liberties in the social situation we find ourselves in, in this pandemic scare? And why are they so easily surrendered by a people who once were famous for quoting things among their leaders like, give me liberty or give me death? The reason is, is because we have not returned to the foundation of a society, its confidence and its security, which is the Word of God. A nation which refuses to take responsibility in the most basic areas of life, namely self-government watching over their own souls to pay attention to God's Word, to not forget His benefits and to walk in His way, is a nation that is destined for slavery. To lose more and more of the riches and benefits and the prosperity and influence and significance they once had, only to be made subjects under the dominion of harsh taskmasters, those who will rule over them, indeed to become victims to the hand of their enemies." And so when we find ourselves in a place like this, whether we're America in 2020 or Nehemiah or uh, under Nehemiah's leadership, returning to the land in this day, you know, so many hundred years BC, the message is the same. Repent of fair weather, faithlessness, and return to the ambassador call that we are representatives as God's people, whether we were there years ago as his called out ones according to the covenant of Abraham to shine a light to the nations, or we're the church today which is called out to shine forth with authority the message and truth of God's word, embrace your ambassador call. You are to represent the authority, the glory, the lordship, the power, and the immutability, the omniscience, the omnipotence of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so to be posh, to adopt a fearful disposition or a posture of uncertainty or a certain faithfulness is to betray the message that Jesus commands us as ambassadors to uphold, that He is Lord and Savior and sovereign and sustainer of this entire universe. And as Mark prayed this morning, the government indeed rests upon His shoulders. Recognize that dominion is belongs to Jesus Christ and His people. And if we forgo it, God will bring a chastising correction and we will become entangled with all sorts of tyranny. 
Now, what's the basis of our appeal, appellate basis, appellate's adjective form of appeal? Well, when we find ourselves in a place like this, there's only one appeal, if you will, and it's to the great mercies of our God. In 27b, they cried out to you, you heard from heaven, that's key phrase, from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. In a covenant renewal movement, we must acknowledge that fair-weather faithlessness causes us to forget our dominion calling, our ambassador call of Christ. It also causes us to forget, in many cases, that the basis of our appeal is the great mercies of the Lord. If it were not for the great mercies of our God sending Jesus Christ as a sufficient sacrifice to die for our sins, we would have no identity. We would not be a people. We would have no authority. We would not have any purpose. We'd be hell-bent, condemned sinners looking forward to judgment that a holy God uh, distributes to those who are rebels against His word and law. That was our state in enmity and antinomy and uh, anger and rebellion against the Lord before we were saved. But He in His great mercies has sent us a Savior. And we soon forget this uh, in times of fair-weather faithlessness. We forget that if it wasn't for the mercies of God, our nation would not exist. We would not exist. What is the basis of our appeal? Some might say our nation does not exist unless we organize ourselves just so with a bunch of social programs. Our nation does not exist unless we embrace socialism by uh, redistributing the wealth in a more equitable fashion according to the arbitrary terms of whoever happens to be in charge of the body politic at the moment. Uh, the basis of our appeal, some might think, is in the future of technology and what it could do to heal the body and promise a glorious hope and extend life and prolong the inevitable and secure for us the best and closest thing we can in the sum of our abilities to heaven on earth. No, these are all vain, deceptive, and failing and decaying and decrepit pursuits that man appeals to in his faithlessness. The only sound appeal for help for hope from inevitable doom is the mercy of our God who provides a Savior. And when we cry out to Him, we, are, we cry out to one who will hear us from heaven. Notice in this picture the situational perspective. God is in heaven. He is above. He is sovereign. He is over. He is independent. He is non-contingent. He is Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what does the Bible say of this earth? It is His footstool. It is foolish to think that we can make an appeal to some power within creation. Any man, expert, whatever, ambassador of government and so forth, anybody we hold up on a pedestal in this life is subject to the same weaknesses, frailty, finitude, as we are, sinful nature and so forth. But there is a basis for a strong appeal. But it is only found at the throne of the one who sits above this earth. Earth is its footstool. All the enemies of Jesus Christ are in the process of subjugation right now. They're being subdued under him, as one person put it, as furniture for his feet. Every false claim to authority will have to bow. Every knee will, will, ha will bow before him. Every tongue will confess. But meanwhile, the only basis for our appeal is to the throne of grace, the one who stands above it all. And a true revival must acknowledge this. Turn to Christ. And when we turn to Him, we turn to the One who can appoint and anoint a Messiah, a Savior. This is what was pictured in days of old. It says again in verse 27, You heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. Think of Moses as an example. I'm sure we've mentioned him before. 
There are times in Moses' ministry that are curious to us. It seems like God is expressing his will and intent to destroy a people, but Moses goes up to the mountain and bends the Lord's ear, it would almost uh, uh, seem. And he prays and God intervenes and he says on the basis of Moses' appeal that he will stay his judgment. He will not utterly destroy his people. What do we have in this instance? Do we have a God subject to time that is changing his mind based upon the actions of his servant? No. May I suggest to you what we have here is a picture of the intercessory role of Jesus Christ. When Moses intercedes and stands between, stands in the gap between the plight of the people and the justice of God, he is picturing a Savior, a Messiah to come. There will be a perfect Messiah in the future who will intercede on behalf of those who deserve to be destroyed, and that is Jesus Christ. His intercession is not frail, it's not merely typological, it's not subject to sin like Moses was. No, but that office would be filled by the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, Messiah, Savior, Lord, Conqueror, Sacrifice, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we see pictured here that the great mercies of God in His perfect time, in His perfect way, supply for us a Savior. That is a messianic type that is pictured here, fulfilled in Christ, anointed for redemptive intervention, to intervene to save. Finally, we have here the purpose of rest. The people are returning to the purpose of rest. This actually, this entire ceremony, this covenant renewal ceremony, is a good pattern for a Lord's Day, a Sabbath day worship. Notice in verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Now, this reiterates in, their, in our passage here the purpose of rest. What is the purpose of rest? Is it to indulge ourselves, to let in a little idolatry, to become distracted, to use our free time in selfish kinds of ways, to open up the cracks of our soul for the dissipating influences of a depraved culture? No. We know what the purposes of rest is. Kids, pop quiz for you. What is the fourth commandment? Uh, Kids, what is the fourth commandment? Remember? I think I hear it a little louder. Remember? Exactly right. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On six days, the Lord created the earth. Kids, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. That's correct. Now, the seventh day is a day of rest, and it's also a day set apart to revere the Lord. In other words, the purpose of rest is to secure the resources and the time and the attention of the people to be directed to the Lord in worship. Hence, we gather here today. Now, a a nation, a country, a people, an individual that is in apostasy and sin will exploit rest for self-serving purposes. But repentance, revival, must acknowledge and reclaim the purpose for rest itself. Thank God for free time. At the end of the week, thank God that we can lay aside our efforts of the other six days. Why? Because we will devote them not to service of self, but to glorify the Almighty. And as we do, as we direct our attention that He has secured for us, and we direct our provisions and prosperity that He has blessed us with as an offering back to Him, a people begins to repent. A true covenant renewal uh, movement begins to pick up speed and gain traction. A revival begins to break out among a people, repenting of their fair-weather faithlessness. 
exploiting rest for personal gain, using all of the excess to secure for themselves more and more uh, things and time and everything else and self-centered worship, repenting of all of that and recognizing and returning to the purpose of rest. It's easy to forget our dominion call, the basis of our appeal, our Savior, and the purpose of rest in fair weather. Don't allow the enemy to exploit times, even right now, because relatively speaking, though we're in a difficult season, some can say, or you can say by some measure, nevertheless, we remain very blessed as a people, relatively speaking. Major point number two, try to move a little quicker. A covenant renewal movement or a revival must acknowledge the grace and mercy warnings. The grace and mercy of warnings. Notice in verses 29 through 31, and you warn them in order to turn them back to your law. So what is dangerous? To drift from the law of God. Where is safety? To return to that law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. Presumptuous actions disregard the word, the law of God. But sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. Great benefit from following the word of God. And turn a stubborn shoulder and a stiff neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them twice. We see warning in the context here. You bore with them and warned them by your prophets, by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. We are told these days that the only gospel, the, uh, quote unquote, the only message that most people will respond to and want to hear is one of benefits and promises and God loves you and so forth. We are seldom... We seldom preach with as much certainty and balance the great fearful judgments of the Lord. And the very notion of hell itself has fallen on difficult times among the self-professed quote-unquote church these days. However, may I suggest to you that when it comes to warnings, it all depends on whether there's something really to fear. In other words, if there really is a just God, who punishes sins. If there really is a final day of judgment where everyone must give an accounting for their actions, and the only escape, by the way, is the blood of Jesus Christ. If there really is a day of the Lord where His patience finally meets its prescribed end and He answers in judgment, if there really is a hell reserved for God's righteous justice to be upheld in the condemnation of unrepentant souls for all eternity, then it is love, then it is mercy, then it is grace to warn. You see, when people don't recognize the grace and mercy of warnings, what they're really betraying is they don't believe that God is just. They don't really believe there is such a a thing as sin that must be dealt with according to the justice of a righteous God. They don't really believe that there is an eternal destiny outside the favor of the Lord where God will be glorified in the destruction and wrath and suffering of all unrepentant rebels. But if all those things are true, and we know for certain from God's Scripture that they are, then it stands to reason that grace and mercy will extend the warning to the unrepentant, to turn from his, from her sin, back to the Lord. Turn to what, you might say? Well, the law and repentance go hand in hand. The law shows us where we've fallen short. The law shows us where to turn. You warn them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously. 
Law and repentance go hand in hand. The trajectory of reformation, the trajectory of a covenant renewal movement, the trajectory of revival is from our lawlessness, from man's law and order to God's word, God's law, God's righteous dictates, God's standards. We turn from our sin, we turn toward the Lord. We acknowledge as we do so that His law is an unchanging revelation of His righteous standards. And we begin to love them and appreciate them. Not We don't shrink in, te- in fear and terror once God has given us the assurance of our salvation from the cost of the law broken. That comes by Jesus Christ taking on the cost for us. We have a fear and a reverence, but all of these uh, conditions, all of these dispositions of the repenting soul begin to love and appreciate and to revere, to take seriously, to think through and to apply, to rightly divide, to try to correctly understand, to dig deeply into the theological implications of the Word of God. Yes, His whole counsel from Genesis to Revelation. Law and repentance go hand in hand. If we don't take seriously the law of God, we deserve a warning because we are on the trajectory of hell and self-destruction and judgment. We must turn from that (coughs) destiny, that direction, and embrace the road that is narrow and leads to life. And that road is lit by God's Word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and includes all His righteous precepts. The law leads to life, in fact. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. What does that mean? If a person does, if a person lives according to God's word, having been set free to do so by his born-again status, having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then his law-keeping leads to life. His sanctification leads to an overflowing benefits. The law and life go hand in hand. Breaking God's law presumes that we can prescribe a new order for reality. And this is what it means to be presumptuous. Whereas following God's word is a source of order and a source of clarity, a source of a foundational reality for a people, for a person, acting apart from his laws to act presumptuously. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. What does presumptuously mean in this context? Disobedience to the law of God presupposes that you have a better idea. It assumes that man can reorder reality according to his best estimations, his his most learned experts. It's to believe presumptuous law-breaking, disregarding the word of God, is to believe the first lie in the garden. You can be as God. You can prescribe a new reality of or- and order things. You can rearrange ethics in some progressive kind of philosophy to re- better reflect what you would prefer to be the order of things right now. This is the height of presumption. Are you God? Have you weighed all the atoms in the universe? Have you set the galaxies in motion? Do you hold the solar system together by the word of your power? Are you able to speak creation from non-existence by your very words? No. Do you know the future? No. Do you remember all the past? No. Have you been wrong before? Too many to count. You are nothing. So stop pretending that you have better ideas than God. It is presumptuous. We see this all around, do we not? I mean, just this week, there was a transgender individual who was the head of the Department of Health in Pennsylvania that came under scandal for duplicity with regard to the law 
uh, seeking refuge for their own elderly parents, while everybody else were condemned to uh, certain policies that would put them in jeopardy of getting the coronavirus. This is just one example. I mean, you could cite a thousand a week if you look across the landscape of what's going on right now. We are disordered, we are discombobulated, we are fools, we are double-minded, we are self-contradictory, we are depraved, we are sliding into the abyss of self-destruction. Why? Because we are presuming that we can prescribe a new order of things. You know, this morning, the young people are studying in their class, the older ones, the folly of evolution. Evolution is this notion that creation does not arise, material reality does not arise by any prescribed order, but it just develops over time as a process of random chance, mutations, and so forth. Why is that idea so attractive? Because it's evidence throughout nature? No. Nature proves such adherence to this type of thing fools over and over again. It's attractive to us because it gives us permission, scientific permission, so to speak, we think so, to prescribe our own order for things. We are gods if we evolved from lower primates by random chance. Why? Because we are the highest cognitive power in this universe. Is that true? It is not. And God is allowing us to learn that lesson the hard, hard way right now as the folly of our lawlessness and trying to remake things in our own image, the consequences of this are falling down upon our heads. Hence, a covenant renewal movement, a true revival must acknowledge that grace and mercy are extended to us in such times as this by a warning. You reinvent the law you rewrite the terms of reality. You re-prescribe righteousness and ethics in your own way to your own peril. You better stop. You better turn or else you will be judged. Now, there was patience that was secured for the people at this time. In spite of their hell-deserving disobedience, God had grace for them. Notice three references to their obstinance. They were stubborn of shoulder. That is that a kid, you know, you've all experienced this when your toddler is being really obstinate and he doesn't want to return to the car, wants to keep playing on the playground. And even though they're only three years old, you have to expend a, expend a little extra effort to get them to drag them almost to the car. What is that? That's obstinance. It's being stubborn of shoulder. To be refused to be led by your master, by your Lord, by the authority. In this case, in the example, parent to child. That's what the people were like. They were like three-year-olds throwing a temper tantrum at times in their history, running headlong to their own destruction. And God would reach out through the hand of His prophet, His Spirit giving them His word, and grab their arm and seek to pull them back. But they not only were stubborn of shoulder, but also stiff-necked, and they would not give ear. That is, they would not listen. They threw a temper tantrum. Think again about a toddler who... Uh, all rationality leaves, all its dignity is gone, and the only thing he cares about in that moment is expressing his outrage. And so what does he do? He or she lay on the ground and plug his ears and scream at the top of his lungs and kick and thrash his limbs. This is the way we are as a culture right now. God's Word says homosexuality is a sin, and the nation embraces it at its own peril. And what does outrage leftist culture and what does the popular movement virtue signaling idiots of our day do? They stick their fingers in their ears. They scream at the top of their lungs. Outrage, outrage, oppression, oppression, discrimination, discrimination. And they kick their legs and their feet. 
In this is one example, big picture of our culture, of how we have been stubborn of shoulder, stiff of neck, and we have refused to give ear. Yet, there is hope in times like this, saints. God will sometimes extend patience far beyond what we deserve if there remains a prophetic voice among the people. The prophetic voice and the patience of the Lord go hand in hand. In other words, it, repentance may not be forthcoming. We may not have an overturning of unjust policies in this regard tomorrow. But if the church of Jesus Christ would repent of their passivity, their inferiority complex, and their own obstinance to proclaim the truth of God's word, if they will return to the grace and mercy of granting warnings to a culture such as ours, it could well be that God has more patience and that we're, and there will be fruit of His Word going forth. Re, let us return as a people, as a church, as individuals, to the grace and mercy of warnings for ourselves and others. We, must be met, we are measured by the law of God to the degree that we fall short. We need a Savior. And the only Savior, the only true lawkeeper that died in our place absorbing the wrath and judgment we deserve, that paid the wages of debt on our behalf, is Jesus Christ. Final point this morning. A covenant renewal movement, a revival, must acknowledge not just fair weather faithlessness, not just the grace and mercy of warnings, but furthermore, this overlaps with some of what we said, the terms of repentance. Notice in verse 32, there's a sort of a shift. The people in this accounting of their history, as we've labeled it a historical prologue in this covenant renewal ceremony, they get to this point and they say, now therefore, in verse 32, now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. The terms of repentance must acknowledge the holiness of God. Repentance goes hand in hand with an understanding of the Lord. And you could highlight six references to the holiness of our God in just verse 32 alone. Therefore, our God, our God, in other words, we understand that He owns us, we are His people, we answer to Him, and we cannot escape the consequences of our covenant bond. He is our God. We are tied to Him by relationship. Therefore, we proceed in this covenant renewal ceremony. He is our God. Point number two, He is the great God. He is not, uh, the scriptures speak of God over the other gods, but that's gods with a small g. And in context, what you find is any other acknowledgement or any other enthroning of authority among peoples or cultures in other words, these small g authorities are other gods, but they are not great. In fact, they are all held accountable to the great God, the sovereign over all. And so in light of a confession like this, if one were to apply it, they would take their hammers, they would take their stones, and they would leave this worship service, and they would next very next thing they would do is climb up the high places of their culture and begin to destroy the idols of Dagon and Astrith and Baal and Molech, tear them down. And these things we might think of in physical form. Yeah, there's physical form there. But the most powerful and deceptive elements was false thinking, worldly ideas, vain philosophies, popular notions, cultural pressures. Those are the high places that will be torn down. When we realize that our God is great, we will do the same. More than this, He is mighty. 
He has the power and does so at his time and choosing in history to enforce his word. He is more than this. He is awesome. He is our God. He is great. He is mighty. He is awesome. His wonders, his, mer- his benefits, the works that he has accomplished are incredible. They ought to compel our attention, all of our soul, as we have said. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord, all that is within me. Bless my awesome God. He keeps covenant number five and steadfast love. There's six references. Our God, great, mighty, awesome, covenant keeper, steadfastly loving. All this hardship, uh, uh, it says, uh, then let not all this hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. And notice here's six references. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and our people. In other words, there's a sort of poetic pairing here of six references to God and six classes or categories of people. It's to say in as many words that the God who is Lord of all must be acknowledged by all. That kings must stand up and acknowledge that he is our God. He is great, mighty, awesome, covenant keeper, and steadfastly loving. And princes must confess the same. And priests must bow before his lordship. And prophets must proclaim his covenant faithfulness. And fathers must acknowledge he is steadfastly loving according to the terms of his salvation through his Savior that he has provided. And priests likely must profess as much leaders of the church as they proclaim from the pulpits in our land and beyond. They must acknowledge the greatness of God. Prophets, similarly. What we've noticed in sermons past is that we have three basic elements of society here. We have the civil realm, kings and priests, uh, princes. We have the ecclesiastical or the church realm, priests and prophets. And then we have the more individual or family realm, fathers and all people. That is to say, all the people of a nation must acknowledge that God is great among all, uh, greater than all, and is the sovereign to which everyone must answer. These are the terms of repentance, understanding God, also acknowledging sufficient punishment. They say, let all, let all the hardship seem little, or let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. In other words, their plea is that God's puni- the punishment that he has given to them would be sufficient, that he might stay his hand in order to grant to them forgiveness. I want to return to a phrase we used from a prior message. The people acknowledge that if they will, and this is what a, a covenant that is sealed by curse is meant to convey. The people acknowledge if they will not glorify God through their obedience, may he be glorified by their punishment. If God will not be glorified by their obedience, they invite God to be glorified by judgment upon them. But in this time, what they are doing is they are saying that, Lord, we pray that your glory might be sufficiently expressed in judgment. And now upon our repentance, may you show your glory through your mercies and your forgiveness. The people do not make an appeal to the glory and mercy of God at the expense of his glory. Not at all. Where do we make our appeal? Where is there sufficient evidence of his punishment to be found such that we might be the beneficiaries of God's glory unto blessing? I return you to the cross of Jesus Christ. We can pray along these lines in New Testament context. Lord, made the hardship poured out upon Jesus Christ, my Savior, not seem little to you, and that he would take the punishment that we deserve and that we, 
Whatever station we find ourselves, kings, princes, priests, prophets, fathers, and all your people might honor you in acknowledging that sacrifice, placing hope in you, and returning in covenant faithfulness to acknowledge these truths. Understanding God, recognizing sufficient punishment that every sector of society must realize the purposes of God's heavy hand. These are all part and parcel to revival. And finally, this morning, there's a sort of post-judgment evaluation that continues. Verse 33 or 32b, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. And what's recognized there is what I referenced to in 2 Kings 17 earlier. The people recognized that the kings to the north, or that the uh, people to the north came under subjection to the uh, instrument of God's judgment to Syria, just as they have the instrument of God's judgment, Babylon, and they are acknowledging that this was just. Verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. Your punish, they do not resent the Lord for these 70 years of exile. They do not battle by uh, saying, oh Lord, this isn't fair, why me? And why do I have to suffer when I actually believe in you uh, for the sins of my corrupt neighbors and so forth? They recognize you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Now think of this in contrast to the sinful mindsets so prevalent in our day. In our day, instead of the righteousness of the Lord and His faithfulness as the standard by which all else is judged, we hold ourselves up so often in our wicked culture today as the constant or the world's ideas of law, as we mentioned before. We proceed as if we are the measure of all things. And popular opinion of culture exercised by their uh, democratic will in elections and so forth, that this is a way to establish a new autonomous, that is, making rules for yourself or independent of any other authority, covenant. Is this true? No. Is God to be judged by modern sensibilities? Is God to be judged by the arbitrary virtues of our day? Is His word to be weighed and to be considered? and to be put on the dock and carefully analyzed in light of whatever we believe as a people this day and our lostness and our sin? No. Repentance re- recognizes the perverse inversion of reality, and it turns to the Lord and recognizes that He has been faithful and we have been wicked. He is faithful, and we have fallen short of His glory. Be careful, lest you fall prey to any skepticism, any critical analysis that presupposes you are the judge and God is your subject, your patient, your laboratory experiment. When you approach His Word, you humble yourself before His authority revealed in its pages. You realize that you are a subject of a king. Realize that without His provision, you would have no hope. This is the kind of humility that is deserving of His glory. And it's the only kind commensurate with true repentance. He in all his dealings has been faithful. Never once has righteousness in the hand of our God God suffered a bad day. He has been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. You see here in Nehemiah chapter 9, as we're bringing some of our, these, this series to a close, particularly in this chapter, That the words of the people and this covenant renewal ceremony has served to give a voice to repentance is extremely applicable in our day. God is faithful. 
we are wicked as a people. And so this is what repentance looks like. We have heard the voice of turning unto His law, turning from our sin, confessing faith in, his, in the message of His prophets, and placing hope in His provision of a Savior. And so what I would hope that we would apply from this message is that we would hold ourselves personally accountable to these truths and that we would hold out hope for others in this day of uncertainty, this day of false messiahs, in this day of competing worldviews, in this day of hostile, God-hating rebellion, that we would hold out the hope of what true repentance, true revival, a true covenant renewal movement would look like. And in so doing, we would call the lost to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the only Savior whose great mercies are sufficient to rescue us from the sin that a wicked people deserve. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you that it establishes for us, Lord, a perspective and a standard and a reference point and a foundation upon which we can build a sturdy soul. We thank you also that it is sufficient to the task of establishing the constitution of an entire nation. We thank you that in its precepts, Lord, is the hope for eternal life and the recreation and establishment, regeneration of all things according to your perfect will and glory in the new heavens and new earth one day. We thank you that though the whims of man and the doctrines come and blow like waves driven across the face of a fluid sea, nevertheless, there remains an anchor, there remains a lighthouse, a port in the storm, and that is your revealed truth. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who came and dwelt among us. We thank you that in the prefigurings of old, he satisfied all which was prophesied when he came and died for us. Lord, we pray that we would cling all the tighter to Him in day of uncertainty, remembering that the gospel of all essential services is most necessary of all. It is the only true, ultimate, and enduring source of hope. May we be freshly convicted of these truths and boldly equipped to share them by the use of your means declared this morning to our ears. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.